It's the end of the Supreme Court term. Yes, that's true. That happened on Monday. It's the uh, last episode of Oral Argument. Oh, cool. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think we might do a few more. Okay. Um, and we got we had a great uh, guest today. That we're we're doing the Inception thing again. Oh, we are. As it was right. uh, labeled. Which who was the guest who labeled the Inception thing? I don't remember, but um. Because they took that out of my mind. I know. I think it was Derek Muller. Uh, but uh, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we we just uh, got uh, finished with a conversation from a uh, uh, Kareem Creighton who is on the other side of the world right now. Now, was he a classmate of yours at law yes. school? Yeah, ah, he was. Okay. He was a law school classmate. Um, now at uh, University of North Carolina, does election law and uh, and other things. Um, that was a really fun conversation, beset with tef- technical difficulties. Yes, and, uh, but we. I hopefully by the time. The ships, I will have smoothed them, smoothed them out. But uh, he was a real trooper for hanging in there with us string that. Definitely. Uh, can't wait to have him back. Maybe live in studio next time. Be great. Uh, or, or just a Skype connection that does not span the globe. Yeah, in my experience, it's not just the globe spanning, though. It's it was like, part it, of it. it Don't deny that. Eh, maybe. No, I I'm will not, not accept maybe. It was part of it. Because there was it, latency that would not have existed. Yeah, there wasn't That's a lot of That's never latency. existed yeah. when we've talked to people, even on the West Coast. I'm so not just sure give in. I'm just not, give in. No, just admit I, hotel that I'm right. Wi-Fi. Just agree. I think it's hotel Wi-Fi. That was not 100% of the issue, and you know it. That was about 100% of the issue. Okay. <laughs> we're we're genuinely having oral argument. <laughs> this is right. This is right. Yeah, about about the source. Because you're you're denying reality in a really irritating way. No, I think you're. I think you're lurching to uh, conclusions. Okay. Um, just call me Lurch. Yeah, isn't that isn't that the guy on Game I'm of Thrones? I'm not as tall or as thin as Lurch. Mm. No, I'm thinking of Reek. I think. Mm, don't call me Reek. Is that, is that that sounds like the worst like follow up to Call Me Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> don't call me Reek. <laughs> that you could this have. this summer's strut hit. <laughs> don't call me Reek. Song of the summer. Song of the summer. Uh, so what, what, we got any follow up? But we we have some, don't we? We do. What is it, Christian? Um, well, one thing I wanted to mention is longtime listener and, um, and, uh, death penalty lawyer, Josh Lee has been writing up a storm lately on, on, on case, on case text, uh, the site. And I'll put some links in the show. He's been, cool. if you follow us on Twitter, you may have seen some right. of these things. We're all argument on Twitter. And, uh, I, I retweeted at least one of them, but he's written, I think three things now about, I think it's three about, um, I haven't read the third one, which is why I'm hesitating yet about, about the uh, death penalty, about abolition, what this latest case, uh, the the Oklahoma case decided Monday, decided on Monday, uh, what it means. Um, it's funny about that case because we were joking beforehand, weren't we about how I thought, well, you know, maybe the case will come down for the, um, for the person on death row, because the court will say that, you know, (laughs) one reason for not allowing this particular form of execution is that execution in general is unconstitutional. Yeah. I say joke. I mean, it's not, you know, right, this is, it's obviously, it's obviously not, very, not very funny. serious, but right. like, this is, you know, I would like that. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, two justices, if, although only two, yes, indicated that they wanted more briefing on the question whether, uh, the death penalty is unconstitutional. And that was a real surprise per uh, se, uh, to me, at least it was a surprise that they would do that right now. It's not a surprise that they right. would eventually go there. But no, right they now, didn't, they didn't indicate that, that they were 100% certain that it was unconstitutional, but they did say that they thought it highly likely that that was their conclusion and therefore wanted more briefing. Yeah. I mean, they they can't say, they can't make a conclusion if it's not, you know, the question isn't presented. Right. And they wanted more briefing. So it was a, you know, no, they could have concurred. They they could have said, I dissent because 
uh, I've already concluded that it is always unconstitutional. Therefore, of course, it's unconstitutional in this case. Like Blackman did. Right. Yeah. They could have done the negative of the positive. Ver- well, you, you just said it before, right? Yeah. Um, so they could have said that. They didn't say that. They said, we want more briefing. Yeah. On on this issue, we want someone to want to actually have a case that is about that question. Did you see Michael Dorff posted a question like, why is it that justices who are nearing retirement tend to become absolutist on this um and i don't know what I don't know how many data points on, on the death penalty in particular yeah, on the death penalty in particular and, and then that. orin kerr wrote something i think it was orin who wrote something in the washington post responding to it and and the argument was that it has to do with like being tired of these really really depressing cases like the weight of them add up over the course of a career like even when you're on vacation you might have to respond to a death and they take them very very seriously of course and they're always super depressing right you know the crime is terrible usually the mitigating circumstances are so terrible, terrible. Yep. and you're making a conclusion about whether to kill somebody or at least allow someone else to kill somebody right and that this weighs on you over the course of a career and finally you're saying you know this is i would rather not do this right um well, I actually it, it don't, seems to yeah. have that effect on some people. There are other people on whom it seems to have the opposite effect, which is that they it seems they cannot uphold death penalties fast enough. Well, it's that I mean, we Justice should... Scalia seems to be rushing toward the plunger. <laughs> well, in these opinions, was it in the opinion so itself, or I don't hmm? know? If, I don't know if it was in the opinion itself or elsewhere where there was a line suggesting that. Um, I think on the other side, there are people who think that. Basically, for every murder, the death penalty is justified. That's what I took from it. But so if, if you're going to look at what the opposite is of being tired of these things, it's being tired of them and saying, why are we reviewing these? They've been through. A pro- well, all we should do is check that the process has gone through and right. that would eliminate most they of these cases. They should have a trial and appeal and right. then be executed. Yeah. Right. But I, I'm not sure that I agree with the Warren, though, because I, I don't, you know, I'm sure it's super depressing. Um, one other way of looking at it is that as all these cases add up. You know, maybe it's exactly like Justice Breyer and and Ginsburg say it, and like Justice Blackman says it, and like Judge Rakoff said it in New, uh, in the um, in the Southern Southern District, I think. Right? Uh, you see enough of these, and you realize this: you can't explain why these cases come out differently. You can't explain who lives and who dies based on any kind of rationale. Right? Uh, why am I doing this? You know, why are we like the benefits of this are? are so minimal next to the obvious costs. I, I would take what he says at, at, at what they say at face value, that it really is not about being sick of this super depressing thing. It's being, being sick of doing this and having no reason right. uh, uh, for it. And that being up and up close to it shows you all those uh, costs and blemishes in, and irrationalities in a way that being distant from it, you probably can't yeah. appreciate. And this is, I, I think I've said this on the show before too, and I've talked about it in my Supreme Court discussion group with the students as we talk about these death penalty cases, obviously far less close to them than any uh, one of the justices. Um, but after reading it, just reading the outputs, forgetting about like dealing with stays and being on call for these orders, you get the sense that, uh, and Oren did include this in the, in the Washington Post article, that there's a tremendous amount of judicial effort being spent on these very few cases and the gain that you're getting is killing somebody versus letting them live in prison forever. Uh, And can, can that possibly be justified? I would go further though and say that it's not just like, that's a waste of, of human hours. I think it distorts the law. Like all of this legal thinking is being funneled into this question, these kind of close questions about mental capacity and the death penalty about, um, 
what crimes should qualify uh, for the death penalty, what the role of a bad childhood or mitigating circumstances should be, what the method should be. Like there's a tremendous amount of like intellectual energy being absorbed by this. And to pick up on one of the themes that we talked about last week with the gay marriage decisions, uh, I think, you know, and King versus Burwell, I think is where this came up. You know, part of the measure of a society or the measure of a society is the questions it spends its energy answering. Right. And this question should these people in the category of death eligible inmates, should they uh, live or die, absorbs in a tremendous amount of energy. And to me, it's a total waste of time, even if you think that the death penalty is otherwise morally justified. Tremendous waste of time um, and energy. And I don't say that lightly because I know people will say, well, it's not to the victim's families, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But social resources are not unlimited. Right. Not all. Not for anything. Need, not all social needs can be met. Right. In fact, precious few things that you might call a social need can really be met fully. And this is just, to me, a tremendous, a tremendous waste. And that's even setting aside the morality, whether it's ever moral to, to do this. And that's, I think, a more complicated question. It's one that I think I have an answer to myself, but I recognize there are, you know, there, there's a lot of moral uncertainty. Um, but even setting that aside, this is, to me, is just dumb. But anyway, so so Josh has written these pieces uh, about and one of them is a really nice um, kind of tripartite breakdown of of Justice Kennedy and how his like libertarian self and and his uh, um, I forget the, the phrases he uses to describe these different kinds of Justice Kennedy are all kind of mixed up in this in the death penalty jurisprudence. Mm. Uh, so it's really interesting. Um, I think we should get Josh on the show. To I tell agree. You the truth. So uh, you're going to reach out to him, right? Joe? I will. All right. So Josh, be waiting for it. We're going to um, I'd love to have you on the show and to talk about these things. And he's got practical you know, a lot of practical lawyering experience in sure. these cases too. So I think it would be great. So that was one of the headlines uh, at, on Monday, the last um, the last day of the court this term. Um, and we got also, I think we got an uh, email from listener Amble and from listener Asher. Were there other emails that came nope. in? Uh, and, the, and I don't, we're exhausted after doing technical difficulties. Should we just put these in abeyance until we talk next time? Oh, let's do that. Is that all right with you? So our apologies to listener Amble and Asher and any other listeners whose emails we will find in the course of the week that I've forgotten about off of the top of my head right now. Um, but please keep the feedback coming. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us at oral argument on Twitter. Uh, we're oral argument on Facebook and you can rate us on iTunes, which helps people find the show. So you don't even have to leave a review. You just hit the five stars. And if it's, as we always say, if it's fewer than five stars, hey, send us an email first. Right, yeah, John? let us talk you into let's, five. Let's, or, or you talk us into making a better show. <laughs> Either way, we don't want your four. <laughs> Certainly not your threes or twos or ones. Oh, no, no. You, once you pull back the curtain behind the voting booth in iTunes, I think that is inviolable and you can make your private choice. That's, mm. that's a little preview. Did you see what I did there, John? I did. That that's was a nice. Little, little preview of today's show. Yeah, very cool. What, what, what else do we have? I feel like there was all kinds of stuff I wanted to talk about with you, which we'll have to wait until next time because I'm exhausted. Agreed. Is that right? Yes. The Church of Cannabis will have to wait. Ooh, indeed. Yeah. A little listener amble shout out there. Yeah. All right. Now let's uh, get on to uh, Kareem. Am I coming through okay on your end? I can hear you perfectly fine. And I think they're going to try to shut these lights off, but I'm going to stay here anyway because I don't have to go very far. <laughs> you stay, stay in the dark and talk to us in the dark? Oh, well, now, I'm sure that'll be a first. 
Probably so. Although we don't, we don't have a uh, for our guests. We don't have a dress code or a. Uh, or we have no way of monitoring what's going on on the other end of these conversations. Very so true. I, I would hate even to speculate what are <laughs> is what. Yeah, You're that way lies law. chaos. I think that's right. We're dealing with the law professors. Um, okay, so we're we're gonna try this for a little bit, and and maybe we'll get a maybe we'll get a segment out of this before the connection gets bad. Maybe we won't get anything, and we'll have to talk to you and you get back in the states, uh, Kareem. Uh, but you know, you're All coming right, to us from go. yeah, you're coming to us from Hong Kong. Uh, I, is that halfway across the world or all the way across the world? You know what I mean? Like, that's an I, ambiguous I phrase. No, no. Well, I can just say I'm 12 hours behind, or excuse me, 12 hours ahead of you. So I think that counts about halfway. Yeah, but it's like, but you can't go f- farther across the world, right? It's, it yeah, seems I think like it's, it's halfway around and it's all the way across. Hmm. Mm. We're back to, <laughs> we're back to pedants. <laughs> <laughs> Back to where we belong, as they say. Yes. Um, so uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to be able to use anything from the first part of our conversation. We've been, we've been um, uh, mess, messing with uh, uh, connection stuff here. Um, but but you're there for a conference on comparative election law. Is that right? That's right. Uh, the University of Hong Kong has uh, put together a group of scholars from around the world to talk about different ways that judges and courts regulate politics and in particular elections. And so I'm going to be here talking about the United States experience along with South Africa's. And there are a great many people thinking about um, different Asian countries as well. And of course, this is all happening in the midst of a very interesting episode in the life of Hong Kong as it figures out how it will conduct the transition uh, to a more normalized relationship with China. So I think a lot of our conversation will have that as a backdrop. Yeah, and that's fascinating. I mean, on the one hand, they must be so pleased um, to have you there to talk about the United States and South Africa, two countries with no history of trouble with elections, and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> history of free and fair elections, and and no no ongoing controversies. But uh, but but seriously, though, uh, you know, the the uh, all the protests in Hong Kong are are almost entirely over who gets to vote in the next election, right? That's right. Who gets to vote? Who gets to choose the candidates from which people will ultimately make their preferences? And it's, I think, fair to say, a pretty big mess. And uh, the politics, I think, run in every which direction. And, you know, that's before you even get to what a judge or court might do. So a lot of this, I think, is in many ways thinking about what transitions look like. Uh, Again, this isn't explicitly the purpose, as I am told, but I suspect a lot of people will be thinking about these things. Yeah, and I think I said that wrong because it was like you clarified it, but the the issue in Hong Kong is who gets to stand for election? Who do the voters get to choose among? And um, the central government in China wants to be able basically to choose the slate or to provide criteria for the slate of uh, of potential candidates in in that election. Do I have that right? You actually, as a law professor would say, actually both of us are right. Um, <laughs> the conflict is both over uh, the candidates who will be slated to run, but also the people who will decide uh, who the candidates will, which candidate wins. Uh, the current system has a group of about 1,200 people who uh, basically choose the person uh, who will become uh, the leader of the government. And the proposal that was recently uh I guess, rejected as a constitutional amendment would uh, broaden the number of people who would ultimately choose, but leave the choice of who the candidates are who can contest for election 
uh, to the group of 1,200. And the 1,200, by most accounts, uh, seems pretty linked to the government in Beijing. And so uh, democracy advocates on the liberal side rejected that proposal out of hand. Hmm. And, yeah, so why don't, why don't we, um, I don't know, do you, do you have anything to say about that, Joe? N- no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish them well. I hope, that, yeah. I, I hope they find a way forward. Um, it, given the given the uh, the colonial period for Hong Kong, uh, which had adapted itself to sort of uh, British norms, uh, and then to go back into a closer relationship with the People's Republic, uh, which is itself undergoing lots of changes uh, economically, uh, much less change it seems politically, in terms of being a one party state. Um, it sounds like it's very very difficult. Yeah, I, I hesitated, um, which is why I kind of threw the ball over to you, because I don't know how much to go over to to go into this thing, uh, um, because it, it does. I've been thinking about um, different kinds of markets a lot lately and why we choose different kinds of markets for different things. Right. And uh, election markets are, uh, are are intended to accomplish a certain kind of objective that that other kinds of markets don't satisfy. Right. So an election market is a market with votes and it's you know, the power in that market is determined by who you allow to vote and what you what you allow them to choose. And and what's so interesting about uh, the Chinese example is that that what you're trying to produce through that market depends so much on what the society wants. You know, what what is the what values do we have? And, you know, obviously social stability um, in in light of their their history and their current outlook and the it is a much I don't know if it's a much bigger deal in central China, but it certainly is um is a value that is seen in a different way uh, than, than it is here. And it explains a lot of, of how people see their government there and what they would want out of an election. And here you have Hong Kong, which has not been a part of, uh, of, of uh, mainland China really for a long time and is being reintegrated. And these two kinds of desires are clashing there. Um, but look, I'm not a Chinese analyst. So I'm hesitating to go into this because I, I don't know what I'm talking about really. But uh I, I don't know. How, how do you see, I mean, do you see elections in kind of the same way, Kareem, that it's a different kind of market and the structure of that market is something that we kind of, the, the regulations are kind of obvious and, and maybe more centralized in, in election law and they reflect what a society wants? That's a, it's really interesting. Uh, you put a lot into the mix. And let me just say, I'm also not a China scholar nor one of Hong Kong. So uh, we're probably rapidly getting to the limits of uh, my understanding. But um, I think that your point about markets is a good one. It's interesting that um, you are matching two things that I think put together what economists would say about how the world works. I'm thinking about you know a finite resource uh, that's essentially controlled like votes with actually things that I think are more culture-based. Because I think you're right. The foreground point of all of this is what we want out of um, a system that we design and how, and, you know, again, the political scientist in me would say how we operationalize those wants and desires. And you're right. We do that sort of using a language and tools that seem pretty attuned to markets. And by the way, we're thinking that um, we're thinking about those things, not just in terms of votes, but of course, and we'll probably get into this at some point, uh, through money, right? That Uh, Just as as we think our preferences get voiced through these special moments where we put ballots in boxes, 
um, or we campaign and put signs outside of our homes, we also, uh, I think, put a lot into uh, a private market of showing our support through cash, which, of course, the court looks at as speech, but that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, and I, I part of the reason I'm thinking about this is because I've been outlining this this article in, in my head and a little bit on paper and um, very, very recently now. And, and part of it is like the ways that law segregates different kinds of markets where you, you want power in one market to influence power in another market, but you don't want power in, in this other market to influence this power in the other market. So generally, we don't want power in an economic market necessarily to influence power in the voting market. And it's because we want very different things out of those. Like the, the, the whole idea of a market is an instrument to produce something else, right? Uh, the market is never, you know, I think, at least from my perspective, is not a good in and of itself. Um, yeah, it's just a tool. It's just a tool. Now, one of the tools that it can deliver is like freedom of action. And, and I think when you, uh, meaning, you know, in, a, in an economic market, right, depending on how it's regulated, one of the things it can do is like help me achieve freedom of choice within the constraints of what the rest of society wants. So if I want to go into the car business or this business or that business, like I have the quote unquote freedom to do that partly because um, other people want those things, right? And I, and, and I can kind of choose among those things subject to those, to, uh, to those wants. And I think, you know, one of my complaints, kind of the libertarian outlook is there's an identification between the freedom, that, which is a, a goal of the market and the market itself as freedom. You know what I mean? And, and when you identify economic markets with freedom directly, then it becomes like less distinct why you would want to separate that market in a really serious way from, say, a voting market, which also has the goal of delivering freedom and and equality and other things too, right? But if you see both of those markets as instruments to deliver that thing, then you might say, well, yeah, they're both instruments, but they need to be kept totally separate in order to deliver what we want. Anyway, I'm thinking about this in my head, and I've got a lot of other examples of, of, mm-hmm. of walling off these markets. But, um, you know, the minute that... that um, I started to look some, through some of the uh, stuff that you've been doing recently, Kareem, on, on the Voting Rights Act and everything else. I'm just thinking, you know, in my head about all the different kinds of ways where, you know, it's hard work to keep these markets both separate and on track, like on track to deliver the social good that we want when we when we don't always articulate what that social good is as precisely as we could. I think that's right. As you were talking about it, of course, a, a stream of cases uh, came through my head about um, matters where the court is trying to work through questions, in some ways applying a market understanding to try to resolve a claim, but not really doing the kind of work to think about what it means uh, in terms of our values. What is it that, as you say, uh, the market's producing, and is that a good either that we've agreed to in the Constitution or if you know, it says nothing about it. Uh, you know, can we look at it as a social good, given what we know is the likely product of the system? Um, you know, the case actually just this week uh, that came down, uh, the Supreme Court having to do with the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission is one such case um, where you see one side of the court saying, well, obviously, this is a, a case of market failure where you have incumbent Uh, legislators drawing districts that essentially allow them to stay in office, notwithstanding what the voters might want. And the other side of the court saying, well, I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. It may be a self-limiting enterprise. And so maybe our role in this market as the courts isn't to step in and sort of offer a constraint that prevents uh, 
uh, these legislators from doing this, but instead to let the political process play out on its own. So, I mean, that's just one example. There are many others, but it seems to me there's a lack of conversation about those values in part because I don't think we agree about what those values are. Right. Yeah. This is like a, uh, you always cite to cast Sunstein's incompletely theorized arguments, right? Mm, I mean, when we don't agree on ends, sometimes we can agree on means only because those means are either they deliver both ends or, or the means are obscure enough where we kind of kick the the dispute down the road a little bit. Um, Yeah. The problem though is of course, elections are the train that always have to run on time. (laughs) Right. And, you know, in the midst of our trying to work through this, we still have a system where we produce candidates and those candidates vote, vote on policies when they're elected. And so, you know, our lack of decision, right, our dithering about this question on some level makes this a real problem. And just to tie this to what you described earlier, uh, some of my work having to do with voting really does, to me, raise this case in really stark relief because. Uh, I think of old cases where the court wouldn't intervene in uh, obvious violations of the non-discrimination standard in the 14th Amendment. Uh, there's an old case, Giles versus Harris out of Alabama, where you know uh, the court looks at a case where the state explicitly says, you know, we're not going to register you because you're African-American. And Giles, the African-American, goes to court for the court for relief. And the court essentially says, hey, you know, we understand that uh, the rule has been violated here, but we just don't see any effective role that we can have by issuing an order. Now, that was a case in the, say, 20s or 30s, and we didn't get, you know, any effective remedy from the court until the 60s. And so think about the number of elections and policies that were adopted in the absence of, it seems to me, a fulfillment of what uh, we think thought the constitution required of our political market where we're talking about uh the right that everyone has regardless of race to cast a ballot and of course that whole period from um i basically the rise of the Klan, right and jim crow uh after the uh, death of reconstruction to the um civil rights area and, and even continuing now is it's it's not so much about you know there's uncertainty about what we want out of that market uh for elections and who should participate it's that there's a battle for control over that market right there's the um uh kind of you know earlier you know actually you know they were forthright about it uh the the people who wanted an apartheid system wanted to control their own system the united states uh um at least at its best moments wanted to impose a system of free and fair elections uh, for all uh, for all people, and, uh, and and that's you know so you know one way of seeing it is that that you know who gets to regulate that market, who gets to decide the goal, and but but most of the most of the battles, most of the legal battles are over implementation details, right? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think there's something to be said about it, and of course the other complication in all of this is we think about. Uh, we have to think about it on different dimensions too. We're you've mentioned one that's very, I think, common in our uh, constitutional law: the fight between obviously state and federal powers about regulation. But then we also have the question of sort of public versus private, right? That comes up in the white primary cases. What yeah. does the political party do? And we rely really heavily on political parties to do a great deal of the ordering and the market sort of management that uh, sometimes we might be uncomfortable with. Obviously, in the white primary cases, we really were. But there is a hand-in-glove kind of relationship when it comes to thinking about that dimension as well, the party and the the government, private versus public, where we really haven't been quite clear about what uh, 
what that market looks like. Is is it a private market? Is it a public market? And what do we expect out of you know the the process, depending on how we look at it? Yeah, it, it's you can there are a whole bunch of cases. I mean, I've actually written about the public private distinction in this context, but there, but it's it's weird, like because you know voting is. And, and the outcome of an election is is almost the most public act that we have, right? It, it constitutes our public, and yet we think that um, a lot of us think that the the private choice that an individual has in terms of you know whom to vote for or uh, or what to decide it, it couldn't be like more inviolable as a private matter, right? Like you close the curtain on that voting booth, and that's an intensely private act in in multiple senses of the word private. But it is also the ultimate public act uh, when aggregated with everyone else, which is, I think, why people are kind of torn. Like if you knew that, you know, if we knew for sure that the the outcome of a certain um, uh, um, ballot uh, measure um, was entirely because of, say, racial discrimination, you know, may, maybe it's an anti-affirmative action ballot measure in some state and we polled people or they were they were candid when they're coming out of the booth i pulled this because i think that um african americans are inferior or something like that they actually had a white supremacist attitude that was the motivating factor behind what they did in the voting booth right then we we know that in a way that if we knew it about the legislators in a particular state who passed a, a similar statute with that i think courts would strike it down and the question is like what do you do with voter motivation and I think, you know, you, you can maybe educate me about this because I'm trying to remember now and I, I, don't, I don't in my head as to how courts think about this. Like on the one hand, I think judges are pulled towards saying that when that curtain is pulled in the voting booth, that what happens there is inviolable, unknowable. We're not going to look at it. And on the other hand, recognizing that this is a very public act. And I think didn't this come out in the gay marriage stuff, especially in, in California, where there was an attempt to look at the voter motivation? I don't, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do, uh, I do. Yeah. And you've, you've, you've really nicely described, I think, one of the biggest puzzles um, in at least the work that I do, and certainly I think most voting rights scholars would tell you, it's uh, complicated. Um, actually, the case that I think really fits this is Romer, right? Where right. Uh, Justice Kennedy says, well, look, I see this statue that looks like it's uh, – you know, pretty neutral on its face, but I see how it works in practice. And there's essentially, he says, you know, there really can't be much other explanation other than animus that allows, you know, this one particular uh, kind of issue to essentially be taken off of the public uh, discourse, out of the public discourse. And it has to do, it seems, only with the notion that people didn't like the fact that a certain jurisdiction in Colorado decided to be, you know, more open to the LGBT community than the rest of the state. The way in which it actually connects to race, and it ends up a lot in, again, the work that I do, is um, with figuring out how to regulate what we think is uh, a negative effect. So what the law essentially does, uh, uh, voting rights, it doesn't usually get into the question about motivation, um, although it sometimes can come in to the conversation in a sort of tangential way um, from the perspective of the candidates who are campaigning in a racialized manner to kind of build a circumstantial case. But what the law usually does is just try to say where we see, as you point out, the aggregate evidence of a uh, racialized uh, set of preferences in ways that would, if we repeated this over a series of elections, always disadvantage a uh, minority racial group 
to the extent that they usually lose elections. That's the language that comes from a case called Jingles, Thornburg versus Jingles. The court's willing in certain, uh, under certain conditions to step in. But note that that characterization doesn't really get to intent of any individual voter. It says instead, well, we don't really need to know too much about the intent. What we need to know is, are there circumstances where we think, as the court, we need to regulate what looks like a market that habitually disadvantages uh, non-white candidates and voters? That's fascinating. And I, I feel like my thoughts on this are almost too inchoate to go <laughs> to go further. I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I've written about it um, in, in uh, at the edges in, in other areas, but it, it is a great puzzle. Joe, you look like you're pondering it's, over there. Well, yeah, I am. It's it, especially... Uh, Thinking about Romer against Evans, uh, which was really the first in this in this line of Kennedy opinions. This is sort of reaching back to our prior episode. Uh, Justice Kennedy having written Romer and then Lawrence and then Windsor and now uh, Obergefell. Uh, but the but the the Romer point about animus and contrasting that you know sort of contrasting the situation where you would look at the rhetoric around the campaign that led to the passage of that Colorado constitutional amendment on the one hand which is a statewide race so it doesn't involve individual legislator districts right it's a statewide race um compare that to you know what 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 would a court do when it if it were confronted with the question well look this governor won his race or her race for the office of governor um, after a campaign where they repeatedly made highly r- racialized appeals or or appeals that were um, all about uh, disadvantaging gay and lesbian people. Um, and, and I think a court would look at you like, what do you think I can do about that? <laughs> I mean, <Right. laughs> I mean there's, there's just no tool in the box that lets me get at that problem right um because it's a person who people voted for and not and not a bit of text that's Uh, right that's an interesting juxtaposition in my mind it's troubling in a way but not in a way and then the other piece of this of course is as you um, nicely pointed out joe you know an election offers people to think about a swirl of issues right that may be housed in a particular candidate it could have to do with you know, in the world we now inhabit, independent organizations maybe giving the messages that might be offensive, whereas the candidate, and this is usually the case, the candidate says, hey, I don't know anything about them, and I, the usual parlance is I reject them and renounce them. Um, but, you know, once the bell is rung, it gets into the voter's head. But what is a court looking at that election in retrospect uh, do to kind of ferret out, A, whether, you know, they, anybody should be on the hook for a message? But B, how that message was received and processed as a voter decides who to vote for. That's a tough one. And you're right. There are no tools in the toolbox to deal with that. Right. And you could even marry the two. Like, you know, we can imagine quite specifically with Romer again, if we went back and said, okay, now now that you've struck down this part of the Colorado Colorado Constitution that we added with this uh, ballot measure, um, let's start looking at the people who won who said they endorsed the amendment while it was up for consideration, didn't they take advantage of energy supporting an illicit thing? And if those people won by a close margin, uh, shouldn't we be reevaluating? Of course, again, you people would look at you like you're a nut, right? If you tried to do this in some judicial forum or 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 
in any official way. But has there ever been a case of, uh, so take this out of the voter context, where, again, we have this intense public-private duality we're trying to unwind, but just a, an appointment, um, either at the state level or federal level for a judge, where the questions, uh, say, during the confirmation process, or the, you know, even if it's just appointing people on a, on a planning commission from a city council, make it clear that there was a racial motivation behind the appointment, not not that they were um, not that they were uh, excluding anyone because of their race, but they were supporting someone because of maybe racist views, and they put them on there, right? But that's not you know. So normally, you know, you would that would normally for a court we're going to review and, and strike something down, and they were going to take into account the rhetoric around the adoption of something. Right. It would be that 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 rhetoric helps us to understand the law's effect. Uh, uh, the, the kind of objective meaning of the law, you know, this is the way that we get a, that that especially textualists and others kind of get around looking at legislative history and, and pretend not to look at motivation. Instead, we say there's some kind of quote unquote objective meaning, and that objective meaning is hostile or, or it, it, it constitutionally infirm. So the upshot is, you know, so and if, it's if, evidenced by these things that were surrounding its right. adoption. So it, yeah, and, and if all these, uh, if say a bunch of city council members here, are there's saying, a person, right? If a bunch, <laughs> exactly. If, if a bunch of city council uh, members are saying kind of uh, racially stereotypical things or, or, or racist things and adopt, say, uh, an anti-affirmative action rule or some other kind of rule, like that I think is closer to the heartland of what courts are comfortable with striking down on equal protection or, or, or civil rights statutory As opposed grounds. to appointing an official. As opposed to an appointing official. Like, do you say the appointment is bad because the person was adopted and, a you know, the reason for the adoption had this kind of racist element? Has that ever happened before? You know, it's interesting. The I think your your characterization is right. I think in general, um, for two reasons, courts are not frequently doing that sort of thing. One is, of course, I think courts, you know, being small c conservative about matters, want to build a case that looks like maybe at best a circumstantial one, where you look in the background and you see um, enough of these statements to you know, kind of build a case that this must be what the motivation of the legislature was. Now, of course, there are instances, and actually I work for a judge who uh, cited this uh, one awesome moment in, uh, well, not a happy moment, actually, in your state, the state of Georgia, which um, engaged in a bit of unhelpful redistricting, I believe it was the 1980s, that African-Americans challenged. And uh, uh, the judge I worked for, Judge Edwards, in an opinion, uh, cited a bunch of really horrible statements this, uh, I think it was the Speaker of the House at the time in the state legislature made. And he made a finding of fact that this person whose name I can't recall was a racist. And I thought, well, you don't often get, you know, very clear statements on the record that allow you to make that kind of finding. And, but when you do, uh, you know, it, it's a special moment indeed. But I think most <laughs> times it, it, in the modern era, I think legislators have become smarter, <laughs> and frankly, with the advent of you know televisions and all of our gadgets that record things, I think they're well advised in most, but not all cases, to uh, avoid making those sorts of you know very explicit statements. But one last point to make about it: I think it, the other reason I think courts uh, want to avoid you know the the harshest of the findings that might be derived from some statements is well. You know, we want to expect that people who are duly elected, right, have the public's uh, will and their interest in mind. And therefore, without something very explicit, it's hard to come to the conclusion that there were nefarious or abhorrent or animus written 
uh, intent behind it. So you can write support the horrible law that you know is bad to group X, but maybe you had some non-animus-based reasons for doing it. Maybe it saved more money, right? Yeah, and, but it's almost like you know yeah. because the, the worst possible thing you can be called these days is a racist among um, among many circles. It's uh, you know, it's it's almost like avoiding that conclusion X. You know that that the reason was X, the racial reason, and instead the reason was Y is almost the default. So it's it's kind of perverse, right? Because so let's change it up a little bit. Let's use a different a different example and stick with an official being appointed to do something. So let's say that um uh tomorrow, and I know nothing about the structure, the actual legal structures uh, applicable in the state of Louisiana, but let's say that um, uh, tomorrow a currently serving clerk of a county court dies, uh, and the governor is the one who gets to replace that person until the next regular election can be held. And uh, the governor makes a great public um, show of the fact that um, he's only going to consider people whose religious uh, beliefs would prevent them from issuing licenses to same-sex couples. Isn't that a religious test for office? And the is it? I mean, he's asking about the person's conscience. He doesn't care what particular religion it is. Uh, he's just asking about their conscience. Hmm. Um, and they and the people who are being considered for the job make a great show of the fact that yeah my re- my religious conscience wouldn't permit me to issue those licenses. Um, uh, so fine. So it is a re- let's. I'll just agree with you. Yeah, it's an invalid imposition of a religious test. Mm-hmm. Um, someone goes to court and says to the court, "Please remove that person from office that the governor just appointed." Uh, what's a court going to do? What can they do? Can they order the person not to be commissioned? I mean, I think these are difficult questions, aren't they? Maybe I'm just ignorant about how things were dealt with in the past that are analogous. Let me just add one complicating thing in here, Kareem, because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, after famous case of Washington v. Davis um, with equal protection, it's not enough that there is a racial effect, right? There has to have been like a racist purpose, um, uh, you know, has race has the the desire to discriminate must have been what a substantial motivating factor or something like that. I I, I don't I don't know what the state of the art statement right. of this is, but um, and but at the same time, there's this reluctance to look at subjective motivations, right? And, and especially in a case like this, where the effect is an appointment or the effect is something where you know there's not a law which has ongoing objective effects on people. Right. Because that the objective effects are filtered through the subjective mind of an appointee. Um, it seems like a really difficult. Uh, it seems like a difficult case, although I know what I would do in that case. Yeah. But, uh, what, what do you think? There's a, there's a lot there. I mean, my general sense is the cases that just building from the cases where the courts have been asked to do. Uh, things that would significantly alter the political process. And by that, I would include not just appointments, which are usually given, right, by a constitution or a statute to an officer or a set of um, officers to uh, do essentially unilaterally, much like the pardon power might be, um, but also elections. Courts are very loath to interfere with that, absent some very clear legal power or legal standard that's been violated that gives them a hook. And 
you know, part of that is, I think, a hesitant on the part of unelected people at the federal level anyway, to find themselves basically doing things that they think politicians should do. They would instead, taking us back to an earlier part of the conversation, want to rely on what they see as a market correction, right? So if the governor in this instance chooses someone who is so abhorrent that the public gets outraged, it is the job of the public then to turn out the governor at the next regularly scheduled election, and perhaps also this person who's been appointed. Now, again, you still run into the problem of what happens in the meantime. This person's still in office who's been appointed and is going to do presumably some things that you know a segment of the population will find uh, unsavory. But what I think the court's answer to that is, at least in the mold that I'm describing, is, well, that's the system that we have, and it's your job as smart, educated citizens, and we'll bracket that for the moment because I think it's <laughs> another part of our yeah. market expectation, right? You'll yeah. do the work necessary to hold people accountable and also in the future prevent such things from happening going forward. Um, as far as the, I guess, the content of the choice, uh, which is the point Joe raised, I just I, I don't see absent a clear uh, law, a statute where they you know were doing something they they actually were not authorized to do with respect to this appointment that a court would jump in at all. Yeah, it's what's to go back to the language we used earlier about markets, right? I mean, leaving it up to the people to be outraged by this choice. The problem is that the governor is is acting as a market participant, in a way exactly like the people in that market want, according to the power that they have. It's the it's the external, you know, it, it's the, maybe here the feds through the federal constitution who are trying to restructure that market in a way that the people don't want. And this is a way that they can resist. And if you leave it up to the people, then they're going to have, you know, there's going to be a prime, you know, this is just a thin kind of translation of the Caroline products rationale for, um, for say federal judicial involvement in invalidating what the majority of a state wants. And I think we're at an interesting moment with respect to marriage equality where different, different groups of people talk in sharply different ways and are, are in fact, in fact, have a self-interest in talking in sharply different ways. Uh, the governor of Louisiana is catering to a very different constituency. Right. So he's being extra clear about how uh, resistant he is. Um, uh, or, you know, as a governor, as a candidate, um, former governor Huckabee, um, whereas as Kareem mentioned earlier, when it comes to certain issues of race in the legislative context, people have gotten much better at speaking in a way that doesn't wave a red cape Mm -hmm. at a judicial bull. You right? know, you just made me think of that. Well, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, so, the, so it, I think it, it, it means we're in the middle of an interesting period where people are still talking in radically different sort of u- right. using different words and phrases, trying to signal different, dramatically different kinds of intention because what's right and wrong is in such contest. Yeah. In cert- from certain perspectives and at certain angles, then that means courts can't, just say, well, you know, this is sort of hard to interpret what he or she was saying. You don't really know what they were, what their intent was. So, no, the intents here are quite clear. You, right? you just pointed out something, I mean, you just raised in my mind something which is kind of really distinctive about this kind of, if we, if I, if you'll forgive me for keep using the market, uh, continue to use the market phrase, but um, basically what the, under your 
and I have no idea what the Louisiana politics are, but just under this hypothetical, right, in this state, what the majority of the people want to buy is, uh, is, is a certain product, right? And the minority wants another product. They want the, bil- the, the ability to have equal marriage, right? The, the market can't have both of those products for sale at the same time. Like one of those has to, uh, one of those is going to win and the other is not. No, they can be on sale at the same time. You can't buy them at the same time. Right, because but they can be on they can be on offer, right? There are people who are opposing right. I'm sure there are politicians who oppose the governor. Maybe they're currently legislators, maybe they just want to run for governor in the next election, who knows? But I'm sure there are people who are offering it. But you know what I mean though, that that what what Not some yet. people in that market want to buy <laughs> is the non-existence of the product for others, right? It would be like a market for cars where uh you know, as people say, well there you, you buy some people want a red car, some people want a green car, some people want this other car. Well, what if you imagine that market where some people wanted there to be a red car and no green cars at all? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean that's the you know, and so I don't know how much I'm just thinking out loud. I don't know how much of what the what is kind of distinctive about these political markets is they they deliver these unitary answers, right? You know, it's this winner take all system, and uh, and the best you can do is offer 50 different states where people can shop around for the kinds of products that they want, and we know the the defects in that. Your last comment raises really what I think is a key matter, frankly, in every democratic system, at least. Um, but you're, you're right. The characterization of the winner-take-all uh, system really is about, on some level, um, choosing. Right? You can only, in that respect, offer one version of the product at a time, and your choice of one does exclude the other. You're right. To some degree, our system tries to offset that by organizing a federalist system, uh, offering regular elections, right? That are you know involve stack returns, etc. But one of the things that we um, our, we, we think we're trying to have with this, and it came up to some degree in Bush versus Gore. I know I had to mention it at least once in this conversation, <laughs> is, right? Is stability, right? We want there to be some predictability after an election that a person in a policy is going to govern, right? We want there to be um, some clarity about what the government stands for. And we'll right. put to the side the complexity of government. But of course, there's the other contending concern here, which is representativeness. And we don't all row in the same direction and sing from the same playbook. So how we balance those things out, given our systemic choices um, about how this market operates, and as you say, all the tools that we use within the market really go to that very question. And by the way, what makes questions about elections so difficult if we're talking about structure is in the current era, and I'm writing about this now, it is impossible to essentially don the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, right? We know the likely effect of every choice that we make in redistricting for sure. I can tell you, you know, I can give you a map that does just about anything you want me to do with it. But if everybody knows what the effects of those proposals will be, it's a death match because it's, as you just said, my choice of one map is a choice about certain candidates and certain policies. And there are going to be some people who will fight to the death against it. And that's kind of, that, that's really at the core of it, one of the complicating factors of uh, this sort of election law question. We are concerned about these values. The values in some cases are often conflated with the immediate effects of a particular choice. And every time that becomes an issue as to which candidate and which policy wins this election, you know, it's it's deathmatch. It's WWE. <laughs>
Deathmatch. Yeah, when you I choose, like I mean, when you, yeah. you know, when I choose to think about um, a particular poem, it doesn't affect what poem you're thinking about. In fact, it doesn't even affect whether or not you're thinking about a poem. You get to think about what you want about. I wasn't about. until you said something about it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but but I think this is, yeah, the the um, electoral outcomes, Christian, you're right, are, are a, there's a sense in which my getting what I want is a negation of you getting what you want if we are supporting different candidates. There was a candidate from Nantucket. <laughs> Whoa. Um, and that's, and that's, I don't, I don't inter- that and ends, that's yeah. interesting that, that yeah. you have to, it, part of what, and wh- I mean, one, one, one immediate thing that, that makes me think about is why the, why I think the process um, is so important with respect to helping people feel better about the, about losing. Right. And accepting a loss because, you know, just how big a loss is. A loss is a negation of a lot of the things you want Um, and getting creating a a set of of rules and practices and standards that people will accept peaceably um, that rather than just keep on fighting uh, by by other means. um, I mean, that's really important to do. And we've we've actually accomplished that in in most respects here in the United States, but there are a lot of places that haven't accomplished it yet. Yeah. I don't know if we've accomplished it or not. I mean, that's a lot of what you're, I mean, I mean, the voting rights act is all about that though. Right. I mean, it's, it's all about trying to create a system where people can see the results as acceptable by breaking the, if, if you think by breaking the monopoly practices in some States, right. That's right. And, you know, a lot of these fixes, as you say, you know, the fixes aren't just ones that um, we've talked about in the United States. A number of other countries have done different things. The parliamentary system is one way of addressing it. But with respect to the Voting Rights Act, um, I think you're right. One of the um, tools that's, you know, often uh, argued about pretty uh, heavily is in the redistricting context, um, making it a priority for Southern states in the 1990s to create districts where African-Americans and other non-white groups had a strong chance of electing a candidate that uh, wouldn't have otherwise been elected in the, if, if the system were left to itself. And it's essentially the product of monopoly control. That in some ways is a kind of lacuna, if you will, from the normal course of business and uh, our winner-take-all democratic system. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it serves a broader goal. And the broader goal is we acknowledge uh, in the law that we've had an unrepresentative system and to some degree, not just society, the private actors, but the government have both been implicated in sustaining that system. So what do we do to break out of it? And in some ways, what, one of the policies, again, utilizing majority uh, non-white districts or minority opportunity districts that now they're called, um, was one way of getting around that. Now, that's been heavily curtailed by uh, Supreme Court decisions about racial gerrymandering. But, uh, you know, as with anything, it all comes down to politics. Uh, Republicans see, on one hand, this really helping them, or at least they did in the 1990s. Uh, Democrats did not. The world really is much more complicated because, in fact, at present, um, a lot of the states where these racial gerrymandering claims are being pursued, North Carolina, the place uh, uh, where I've been most of the time, is one of them, are now actually claims that are being used that are uh, intending to curtail uh, overreaching by Republican legislatures and not Democratic legislatures. 
So how does how does Shelby County fit into this in, into this story? I mean, one way that it fits into the story we were talking about earlier is uh, it, it's a, it's one of those cases where Justice Ginsburg in dissent. So this is the case that strikes down Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. This is the um, the section that provides criteria um, for uh, states who, by kind of initial condition under the statute, have to seek preclearance before they change their voting rules. Um, there still is a bail-in and bail-out provision that that uh, by which states would have to seek preclearance. Um, this is so the DOJ can kind of look things over and figure out if there are any violations of the Voting Rights Act, um, and if there are, then then they don't allow the the change to go through. All states are, of course, bound by the substantive provisions of the Voting Rights Act, and and if and if they violate those or any jurisdiction violates those, you can sue that jurisdiction under Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. But the problem is, by the time that suit gets heard. Typically, the elections already happened. So preclearance is like this this mechanism by which you can say, you know what, if you're a state which has had problems in the past with this, we're going to make sure before you hold an election, we're going to we're going to preclear these these rules. And what the Supreme Court struck down in Shelby County, again, were the uh, were the uh, criteria for identifying those states who, who had not been bailed in based on a recent history of problems, but um the criteria related back to what was happening in, in the in the early days of the act, whether there were what what is it literacy tests, and I forget what all this. And that's in. all been, but this is this mechanism has been d- dismantled. It's been negated by by Shelby County, right? So there is no preclearance process anymore. Um, right? No, no. That if you get bailed in, you still are precleared. My understanding is what was struck down were those criteria for identifying states that had not been bailed in under the um, continuing criteria for preclearance. Do I have that wrong, though? Right. So, uh, again, uh, we just need to probably put a finer point on, on what we just said. So, Please do. <laughs> uh, but you're, you're, you're quite, you're, you're on, you're definitely quite close to exactly what um, one would say. <laughs> this is the, um, put this on the so, dust jacket in my book. Christian Turner is quite close to <laughs> something which is almost right. <laughs> you know, this counts as in the thick of the weeds, not just in the weeds. So, uh, but I do think it's an important distinction. So what, um, the chief justice said was, um, that he saw nothing at least on its face wrong with, um, section five, which was essentially the remedy. And section five, as you described, essentially puts, um, designated states in the system where they can't change their laws having to do with voting until they get permission, either from a federal court or the department of justice. Section four is essentially the formula that you were describing that uh, determines which states fall under this regime. And it was section four that uh, the chief justice said on behalf of uh, the majority uh, was too dated um, a set of uh, factors to apply to states that seem to have very clear improvements in their political systems. Now, there there are a couple of problems with that uh, analysis, in my view. Uh, One of them is um, asserting that those um, uh, criteria were, in fact, essentially using a snapshot of what happened in 1965. Um, this gets you guys, uh, I think, in previous uh, conversations have had co- uh, discussions about the meaning of legislation and words on a page. Yeah. Um, you know, what Congress essentially did was preserve the existing set of actors that were first identified. But if uh, that's all they did, the chief justice would be right. That is to say nothing more than, well, we just saw that you were found in 1965 to be a bad actor, and that's enough. What Congress actually did in 2006 was to say, no, the name that we're going to give you 
will be the name of uh, the states that were identified in 1965. However, we're going to do record findings in this process to show you in you know today's you know politics all the different things that we think uh, keep you uh, eligible for this pre-clearance review process. And there were record findings and tons of testimony that talked about current problems. But the other way in which this is troublesome is the Chief Justice very narrowly considers what the hallmarks are of bad actors in preclearance. So the Chief Justice says, well, and this actually goes to her earlier conversation, we think the indicia as the chief justice says of bad actors or this type of discrimination that we're after is um, the kind of stuff that prevents um, African-Americans and other uh, minority groups from registering and voting. Right. And by those measures, all these states have improved. Now, leaving to one side, the question of whether or not that improvement is itself the result of the uh, act and it's irreversible. What the um, dissenter said, and I think Justice Ginsburg said this well, was, wait a minute, that was just one form of the discrimination. And yes, they've improved in that respect, but with respect to this other element of uh, discrimination that the law has recognized, which is racially polarized voting, uh, that's what is cognizable under Section 2 as, again, one of these effects that the court, as a statutory matter, is directed to uh, regulate in certain circumstances. And Justice Ginsburg says, well, wait a minute, when we look at that, we see a much more sketchy picture. And, you know, on behalf of a group of um, scholars, um, I worked with um, a group to get the court very clear evidence that showed that the states that are in the Section 5 regime actually have very clear differences with respect to racially polarized voting, uh, where white people won't vote for candidates who don't look like them more than white people in other parts of the country. And so where that's true, there's plenty of evidence that would show that there's a justification for distinguishing those states uh, in the South that had been identified in 1965 under 2006 standards from everywhere else. That was one of the hard things about this case. Now I'm remembering it was it was, it was actually Section 4 that was struck down, right? This part of Section 4. That's right. So Section 5, as we were, Joe and I were discussing, is still operable, but it's only operable against states which have been which are bailed in. Under a separate provision, right? Which and uh, build in meaning not using section four, right? Not which that I old cons- set of criteria, right? Which well, I consider as kind of the, the initial conditions. Go, go ahead, Kareem. Yeah, yeah. So unlike being designated by Congress um, for a preclearance uh, review, um, a plaintiff can show up in court, prove their case that uh, a jurisdiction is violated uh, section two or another provision of the Constitution that uh, has to do with voting and discrimination. Um, and a court can be entitled under this um, statute, uh, under the Voting Rights Act, to bring a person into, or excuse me, a person, a jurisdiction into <laughs> preclearance review by virtue of bail-in. Jurisdictions are people, my friend. <laughs> Thanks, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> it, I guess perhaps it's possible if, <laughs> if we've got our you know, crazy governor making a, appointments of you know, bad actors, why not bring them in under preclearance too? But so far, we, yeah, jurisdiction. And so, so one thing that's uh, this all uh, made me think of is there are kind of, I think, two kind of social currents which underlie this dispute. One of the difficulties in that case was the fact that the the Section Four initial conditions, I'll call them, the the ones which set the initial states which are subject uh, regardless of bail in, uh, 
the work that you did point points out that that rationally it selected states which um, and jurisdictions which could be rationally justified, but on terms which are not the exactly the the literal criteria used by the act. And so, what do you do when an act rationally identifies "quote unquote" bad actors who have problems, um, but where the criteria it uses to identify those states, um, I think we can concede are not entirely rational. Um, at least it's it's really arguable, um, and, and that's tricky. You know, part of it is you're trying to get something through Congress, and you say, "Let's not change this language. It's worked before. We'll keep it the same." The Section Four language. I think the other current that runs through. Um, the debate and maybe more fundamental is basically whether you think uh, there's a lot of racism or not. And mm-hmm. if if you think that as the chief justice asked, I think it was at this argument at oral argument, you know, we pointedly asked one of the um, uh, one of the lawyers whether they believe that people in the South are more racist than people in the North. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. does that explain, you know, is, is that basically the justification for choosing these jurisdictions um, to be covered? Uh, if and, and, you know, the idea was, hey, registrations are up, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, I don't know how much of this is you know, people think, you know, I, I know lots of uh, I know lots of black people who are in positions of power. It doesn't seem like racism a thing anymore. And this was before Ferguson and before um, um, Charleston. Uh, this was a time when I think this kind of and, and Obama had been elected. And so this is at a time, I think, when reelected. Yeah. And when, when when kind of racism denial was at its peak. Um, and but one one interesting thing there in Ginsburg in Ginsburg's dissent that uh, responds to that, which is apropos of our discussion a little bit earlier about calling out people as as racist and being reluctant to do it. Is she actually cites this horrible language which was recorded on an FBI wiretap of Alabama legislators using racial epithets to refer to black voters in their state. Um, And I think both of those things, and that's part of what makes the case complicated is they don't kind of cleanly separate those two social, those two kind of legal and social currents. But that seems to me, the those seem to me to be the fundamental axes around which people kind of divide over in particular Shelby County. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot there. Let me see. Let me start I, with. Look, I'm sure. I'm sure, Kareem. A lot that's wrong. So take your time. No, no. And take, take, take your time and <laughs> in, in, in helping uh, uh, dispel the um, the ignorance that I might have caused. Um, Not at all. No, yeah. you you really do highlight some of the again the thorniest of the knots that we I think deal with in this um, uh, in this neck of the woods. So the chief justice's question, you're absolutely right because it struck me. I was in the room when he asked, and I thought, okay, so this is interesting. So he he, he cites Mississippi. He says, well, Mississippi has a higher rate of registration and voting among African Americans than Massachusetts does, and so why is it that Mississippi should be covered by the act and Massachusetts should not? You know, hitting on a number of um, uh, points, and I think it goes to you know, as you say, the current state of what people think uh, race relations looks like in in the uh, in the country. Now, what I wish the um, advocate would have said is, you know, whether or not white people are more racist in one place or another is less relevant than uh, the fact that, notwithstanding the higher rate of registration uh, that African Americans may have. In Mississippi, which, by the way, African Americans are about thirty percent of the population, and uh, Massachusetts, where they're less than about five percent, and it's a very different population. A large percentage of them are um, uh, largely new immigrant groups. Um, there's a big difference between Massachusetts and Mississippi, 
And it is that Mississippi, since Reconstruction, has never elected a person who's not white to statewide office. Massachusetts is elected too, a Democrat and a Republican. Um, and that actually goes right to the core of the kinds of market effects that we're talking about. Now, is it, you know, just happenstance that over a hundred years or more that an African-American hasn't been elected uh, to office in Mississippi, given all that we know of its uh, market? Um, I think it's hard for anybody to make that, that argument. Um, but I think you're right to say as well there is a difference in how the Chief Justice and Justice Ginsburg want to think about the way that race works in today's society. Because I think the Chief Justice would look would have looked, um, probably before Ferguson, at the stories that um, uh, the dissent raises. And yes, that story, the, the FBI probe in Alabama was remarkable because, of course, the probe had nothing to do with uh, ferreting out discrimination. This is just stuff that people happen to be saying. Right. Um, <laughs> You know, it is easily dismissed often as being, well, that's one bad apple. What does that tell us about society as a whole? And, you know, the dissenter looks at that and says, well, wait a minute. If you're doing social science, you're rarely going to see a clear causal line that's drawn between, you know, the person in the legislature and all the different votes that get cast in terms of policy, but also the way that the public responds to that stuff. But if you see it enough, you know, at some point you can make the inference that that's what's going on. And I think that's really the point that um, Ginsburg was mentioned. Uh, but the other point that I want to raise that I think you um, really do um, point out here that makes all of this really complicated is, uh, how do you think about racism? Do we think about racism, as I like to say in conversation, as we do polio, where our goal is to really eradicate it? We do not want to see polio exist. <laughs> or... Yeah. Treat it like, you know, sickle cell or high blood pressure. We know we're going to have it. We can't get rid of it, but we're going to try to manage it as best we can. And our approach, I think, in dealing with um, uh, voting rights policy and the like has more or less sort of assumed that, well, we're not going to really eradicate racism. But, of course, the weird part of this is that doesn't really match our rhetoric. Our rhetoric seems to suggest that, well, there's no place for racism in our society. Well, if you want to take that hard view – our tools aren't really equal to that task. What our tools allow us to do, though, is to try to limit the negative effects of that, you know, bad behavior and those viewpoints in the system. But, you know, that requires us to be in agreement about how to go forward with those, um, those tools. But if we're contesting whether those tools are valid at every turn, and basically that's been the world we've inhabited, I think, since basically the 1980s when we're dealing with anti-discrimination norms, um, it really does leave the market unsure about how to behave. And if, again, we are thinking in the long term, it just doesn't really, you know, we're in the car and we're swerving left and right instead of moving in a very definite direction. And we've got uh, we've got a bunch of different markets here. And so if I'm just thinking of, you know, so I've got Mississippi, as you say, never elected uh, uh, um, a black person to statewide um, uh, elected office. Uh, that, that's clearly a problem. There seems to be a market failure there because there are plenty of qualified people. It, it should have happened by now unless uh, race was salient in some way. And we've got, you know, there, but there, you know, it's not just Mississippi. There are plenty of other states which have imbalances and certainly plenty of other areas in our, in our society which are, are, are imbalanced. And if you want to say, okay, well, there's this some kind of market failure going. How do we solve this problem? What's what's the issue? And and I think that I, what you point out, I love the polio high blood pressure example because I think that maps on to um, 
an outlook on racism, which is either um, uh, on the one hand, there are stone cold racists and then there are people who are not racist. This is like you're either colorblind or you're not right. You're either Stephen Colbert and you don't see race. Right. right? Or or you are yeah. put, or you're putting on a pillowcase on your head or something like that. Right. There's right. no very little in between. And then, of course, there's a huge amount of science now that basically says that we all have implicit racial biases. Um, and who knows all the other horrible biases that we all have that we're not aware of when we don't focus on the issue, right? That would just run rampant in our subconscious and emerge in our conscious decisions. If you think that, as I do, that implicit, even where stone cold racism has, doesn't still have uh, a grip on the reins of power, uh, implicit racial bias and other biases runs rampant. Um, and we don't recognize it as much. So in other words, there can be, um, outputs of legislators and and cities and police departments and all kinds of things which are the way they are because of implicit racial bias right but you can't attribute those and and logically and and rationally and even if you knew everything there was to know about it you couldn't attribute any of those outputs to stone cold racism and it's almost like we have a jurisprudence which is um disparate impact aside we'll talk about you know uh which is focused on ferreting out stone cold racism so ginsburg has to put that into her opinion in a way to remind people that that that's you know even setting aside whether we're ferreting out this implicit stuff there are still stone cold racists who are, uh, you know, who, as you say, were caught in this, uh, uh, Kareem, were, were caught in this FBI wiretap, not because they were looking for racists, but they were just recording people for other reasons. And guess what? The racism comes out. Um, so, all right. So there's a lot there, but I'm just thinking that, um, uh, I, I want to extend the, I want, I want you to talk maybe more about the polio high blood pressure example and, and, were you thinking in terms of high blood pressure, like we're never going to eliminate even in our own psyches, implicit racial bias, but we can manage like knowing that we have it means we can take blood pressure pills. We can look at, you know, our, you know, if we want to get rid of the metaphor a second, we, we can look at the statutes we write. We can look at the things we do, we do and look at the society that results and say, you know what, we could do better on that. And um, I don't know. Yeah, no, that that's right. Um, I, you know, the idea of eradication is problematic for a number of reasons, and some of them go to what I think you guys were talking about earlier with respect to the First Amendment. I mean, there are private views that, abhorrent though they may be, we and our system are uh, comfortable, or we've decided to be uh, tolerant of them and not impose government will to eradicate them. And, you know, we obviously have a lot of human history that shows the the, the folly of, of trying to do that. However, we also think. Um, you know, there's a public aspect to this thing that we call voting. And when you bring those private views to the public space, it, you know, we do this in a number of different areas. But with respect to voting, we are concerned where it works its way out in the political process such that certain groups continue to lose elections. And we don't think that those elections are being lost based on what we think are rational bases. Um, you know, the discussion of ideas, who you think is going to best represent you. Instead, it looks something like the kind of animus-based stuff that we would say, if the state said this kind of stuff, we would easily you know, be able to uh, adopt you know, any number of constitutional doctrines to get at, uh, to get at that problem. The fix is then that you know, the Voting Rights Act tries to adopt is, look, assume we've got racists, right? We don't want those racists to direct political outcomes such that um, the outcomes in policy always reflect their viewpoints, or that new groups that have uh, been 
continually marginalized from the process over a period of decades um, don't continue to have the effects of that. Here's one good example of that, by the way, because that sounds a little abstract. If you think in the South, and you guys uh, live there too, um, about where highways are, highways are choices that are usually, particularly state highways, that are the product of legislative decisions. Well, often legislatures tend to make decisions that advantage people they like um, and disadvantage people they don't like. Well, imagine what it means to be in a state where nobody in the state legislature represented you or people who look like you or communities where you happen to live. Where would that mean highways would go? And imagine highways over a period of time where we had rapid American expansion and growth during the you know, mid to ni- uh, late 19th century, excuse me, mid to late 20th century. Uh, if you don't have access to the decision-making apparatus, that is likely to have a bunch of effects, not just about where highways go, but also where the goods that go on those highways go or the jobs that can be created. Now, can courts get at all of that? Absolutely not. But what statutes and courts might do is try to change the governmental system uh, of election in ways that may at least give these groups that have been disadvantaged an opportunity to at least uh, exercise more power and influence in the uh, campaigns and elections that elect their candidates who govern. That's really, I think, what the purpose of the Voting Rights Act is. But again, it's contested. And thinking about these sorts of questions about um, cause and effect, right, Um, but also about... uh, as you say, the disparate impact of uh, a lot of these aggregate votes over the time over time when you're dealing with racially polarized voting, those are difficult matters that don't easily match up nicely with a legal doctrine that essentially grew up around the notion of intent, right? Yeah. I say what my intent is, and I will act on what I say. We don't live in that world much anymore, and I think courts aren't really good at dealing with the cases where that's not true, but where you also have really clear patterns of uh, effect that really wouldn't make sense except that they were motivated by something that we don't particularly feel comfortable with. This, this and in a, the case of a legislature like the Congress trying to, um, to address those issues with respect to um, the sort of facts on the ground over many years and, and develop the Voting Rights Act as a remedy, um, you know, yeah, you, we can't expect courts to be perfect, but we also, sh- I think we can expect them to be do better than the Chief Justice of the United States effectively acting like, look, there are two kinds of people in the world, Bull Connor and Bo Peep. <laughs> um, like, there's no one in between. Um, that's just wrong. Are we sure Bo Peep's not a racist? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't. Not an intentional one, no, not a conscious one. Maybe so she I, was separate seat by color. I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, that's. But but uh, it, yeah, it just it just seems so. The, it, the Shelby County majority seemed to me to go out of its way to distort things that we know about people. Here's how it could be. Maybe here's how it could be better. Let me take this back to the market stuff for a second. So, you know, one of the obvious things you do when you're regulating an economic market is you stop people from lying, right? Because it's very expensive if, if consumers have to ferret out liars, right? So if you go on the t- on TV and you advertise some product and, and you just tell lies about it, which is beyond the sales talk and puffery that people normally expect, 
um, in terms of encountering lying. Yep. It's easy enough to shut down and nobody has a even with the First Amendment, we don't have a problem shutting down right. uh, commercial marketplace speech, which uh, and is we give untruthful. that duty both to public regulators and we even give private causes of action to people That's who are right. your competitors. So we really go uh, we go quite yeah. some distance toward trying to shut it down. And I'm just, this is just top of my head. So this, this analogy could be totally wrong, but I analogize that maybe we're just thinking right now again, uh, to, uh, <laughs> stone cold racism, but we don't stop there. If you, if you put out a product and, and you didn't even expect this to happen basically, but you know, people start killing themselves, them, themselves with it. Maybe, you know, it's, uh, you know, some kind of pool and you, you, you ship the swimming pool and it's got a, a certain kind of lip on the edge of it and people trip over it and fall, whatever it is, right? There's some kind of thing, right? right. Um, we say, no, that's not good. The market is not supposed to do that. We, we want the market to deliver things which are, which people want. Right. And if people had known about these defects, they wouldn't want them. And it's not that you lied. It's that facts emerged from people actually having it in their hands, right. using it. We learn something new. When you learn something new, you have to continue yes. to monitor the outcomes, right? So the Consumer Product Safety Commission is there to do right. things like, you must recall those products. Right. And because, you know, we the market is not there because it's a good in of itself, but because it does good things and not bad things on. And if it's doing bad, clearly bad things, we don't have a problem with stepping in and saying, no, stop doing the bad stuff. Right. And we will even hold you responsible at a state tort level or some other level. If, although it was not your intention to kill people and although you were not like reckless with it, if you could have designed it better, right. There are design defect suits and other things. Sure. Right. So uh, that's to me, like the analogy to like implicit racial bias, in a way, right? That like you're, you know, you're stewing in your own perspective of wanting to profit and you didn't think hard enough, right? You didn't, you, you didn't, um, fully spend the funds you should have spent making sure this thing was safe because that wasn't your perspective, right? And the law has no problem blowing right past that and saying <laughs> you should have thought about right. that. We're here right, to, we're here to make that your perspective, and whether no it problem, was or not. Exactly, and no problem saying even if you had exactly the right perspective, based on what we know now, you need to do something differently, which is like stop selling this pool or this barbecue grill or something else, right? If we think that elections are here, right? In order to, you know, because it beats the alternative, <laughs> one, right? right? But also it's a way of self-governing by giving everybody basically equal power, right? Equal power to control the destiny of their own government, right? Um, and I think so one of the things that's important that that promotes is people being willing to accept losses, right. being accepting, not winning, and therefore you're getting your preferences negated. Right. Exactly. And so there should be the willingness, and again, just thinking out loud, there should be the willingness when you see a defect in that market, right? Not to throw up your hands and say, well, nobody is an intentional race. It's not caused by intentional stone cold Ku Klux Klan racism. Right. So therefore we can't do anything about it. I think it's to say, you know, we could do a better job. I'm going to fix this just like I'd take a, a, a dangerous barbecue grill off the market. Right. Like, and in a way, it's a much more important market and not in a way it is a much more important market, the market for democracy. Right. Mm. Yeah. I don't so, know. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you in that. And, and in fact, you really nicely articulated one of the points I was uh, making in a paper about the preclearance um, system. Um, one of the things that people who didn't like uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, you know, uh, were upset about was that, well, it's forcing, right, states to go hat in hand to the federal government and people can't govern themselves. And my view was actually, well, not quite that. It's actually uh, a system that tries to encourage government to correct itself, to give you, as I put it, uh, time to stop and think. 
to stop and think about the likely effects. And one of the things that actually you saw in a lot of these states during the period of time where they were covered was they wouldn't adopt new election law unless they went out their way and uh, sought out the support or at least the reaction and input from uh, uh, representatives from the uh, minority community. And that's not something that goes on as much now. Um, but in fact, it doesn't because they don't feel the need to uh, justify their decisions to anybody, not least of which the Department of Justice or the federal courts. What in its best uh, working Section 5 should do is to build in this uh, approach for states to, as a matter of course, as they would, I know you write a lot about the environmental uh, world, uh, Christian, the, you know, development of a particular plot of land usually doesn't happen without a great deal of deliberation and a lot of back and forth with groups who may not be happy about what's going on, but at least give their input. That's, I think, a version of what Section 5 is intended to do. Let me go to the one other point you mentioned about effects, because it really nicely described to me the point about voter ID. Um, and it actually is a dynamic that I think complicates your conception a little bit, but I don't know that you're wrong at all about what you should expect from the political process. Um, both you and you, Christian and Joe, have mentioned this. Um, one of the complications in a lot of these policies is there's always a, quote, rational explanation for why these policies are needed, right? So for voter ID rules, the argument is, well, uh, we want to prevent uh, the possibility of corruption in the process. Now, there are a number of problems with that, right? One. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence of uh, the kind of in-person voter fraud that uh, the group is the group that favors this is going after. Um, in fact, if you really wanted to rig an election, you do it at the aggregation stage, not at the stage where individuals uh, go and show up to vote. And there's not much at all uh, regulation going into that. But the courts haven't really thought about that very much and talked about that. Rather, they go to the question of, well, does the local government have the power to engage in that kind of regulation? See, nothing uh, wrong with that, notwithstanding the fact that it has all these negative consequences for a lot of communities, not just racial minorities, but older people, to some degree women, um, and, uh, and, and in many cases, uh, college-age students. That's really the problem, it seems to be, uh, that the court isn't willing to go and into the question of essentially a cost-benefit analysis. Is there a better way of going about managing a policy, even if we take you at your word that you're after corruption? Or are we just going to start and stop the inquiry uh, on the question of whether or not you have the power to do it? And I think Judge Posner has, you know, obviously rethought his position on the matter because he didn't think that the market <laughs> was being used in a, the manner that it turns out to have been used. But the question I think that we all need to be thinking about from the perspective of courts is if we're not willing to think about uh, the, the effect of these laws on vulnerable populations as a driving consideration of whether or not we need to have the law. As you say, Christian, where there are, you know, real consequences at stake, then, you know, what role do we think the court's playing in trying to maintain a functioning market? Because if, you know, one political party or another sees an advantage uh, and they can just sort of, you know, reorganize the laws in ways that give them that advantage, they're gonna do it. The hard question is, are we ever going to see the role of the court 
as assuring that parties don't overreach in a way that interferes with what I think is a value. But by the way, uh, Joe, I'm not sure that everybody agrees with this value. Everybody who is a citizen of the United States should have the uh, not just sort of theoretical, but actual ability to cast a ballot in an election. And we shouldn't create hurdles uh, unless we have a really good reason to do so uh, that would make that less likely. Well, I was going to say that, like, I'm not like I'm not arguing for an imperial role for law and economics necessarily. Uh, so the mar- I know there's been a lot of market talk, but so I don't want to overstate it. But let me just say this: we could do worse than maybe applying a little bit of the learned hand formula to a lot of these rules, <laughs> right? I mean, if you apply <laughs> learned, if you apply uh, a PLB to um, right. uh, to to voter ID, I don't think it holds up. At the very least, you have to be willing to explain why it's such a great mechanism for thinking through issues. In, in this set of concerns and completely improper to use it over here. This has been great. I, I really, you know, I, you, you wrote this recent piece about the Confederate flag. Maybe we should save it for next time. If you want to talk more about, um, I'd like to have a conversation about that, what you think about it and the, maybe the problem of race more generally. I know we've talked kind of generally as it is about race and, and, and elections, but, um, there's, you know, you're never going to get it all done. <laughs> I think that actually applies both to this conversation and probably the project itself. But yes, I think that's uh, <laughs> that's right. You, that's true. You're never going to get I'm it all done. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to uh, do either one of those. I'm happy to come back anytime. This was a lot of fun. I feel like yeah, we did a lot. I'm going to be curious to see what this all looks like put together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be it'll be pretty much just like the conversation we just had, minus the little technical difficulties. But man, it's been it's been great. I'd, we'd love to have you live in the studio. That would that would average this ultimate, out. That yeah. would average this out, right? And uh, I think uh, that would be delightful, actually. I can't wait till the next time we hang out. But until then, um, you know, safe travels and have a great time at this conference. Thank you much, and I promise next time it won't be on the other side of the world. Ah, or, or we'll be there together. We could do it oh, all. I that, like that idea. That's the best <laughs> idea yet, I think. So, uh, all right, we'll see you later. Thanks again. All right, take care. Good night. Bye bye.